Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. By 1860, their world was threatening to come apart. Beneath an appearance of prosperity and political unity, southern slaveholders struggled with growing loads of debt, an increasingly restive white majority of non-slaveholders in the South who saw an economy that was not working for them, and a northern majority of voters who were no longer willing to bow to slaveholders' demands. In his new book, Professor William Barney argues that secession was not a grassroots movement, but a desperate remedy promoted by a desperate slaveholding class. We'll talk with the author of Rebels in the Making, The Secession Crisis and the Birth of the Confederacy, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you tonight, the second day of September 2020, from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Pandemic Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not too far from the campus of East Carolina University, but not on campus and not speaking for the campus or for Anyone affiliated with the university, likewise, my guest will speak only for himself, not for anybody in the UNC system or anybody anywhere, just uh, each of us on our own, the way we always do at Civil War Talk Radio. Well, it is uh, September of 2020, most remarkable year. Hopefully, you're listening to this 
uh, perhaps on a recording, you're catching up on podcasts sometime in, say, the year 2021, and we're all still here. But as we uh, talk to you tonight, we don't know. We can just report on how things are now. Most important uh, thing, of course, that anyone in any university setting can ever possibly concerned with is the state of football, uh, which has not begun yet this year, but is still supposed to happen, even though all the students have been sent home and the classes have been moved to online. Uh, ECU's home opener football game is scheduled for late September. And it was announced today no fans will be allowed. It will be played in an empty bubble stadium. Uh, We'll see how that goes. Uh, But I talked a little bit with you last week about the uh, difficulty of teaching under the new conditions and won't repeat that. I will, however, point out that my wife, Emily, who teaches at a K-12 school, has it uh, considerably worse than we do in higher education They have to teach multiple curricula at the same time, face-to-face to to the students who show up and online to those who don't. Uh, So that doubles the workload. Then they've got to do things like tonight is parent meetings. I'm here talking to you. She's doing regular parent meetings, which they normally hold in the evenings, but they're doing them by, by online Zoom meetings. Why not do those from home since the parents aren't in the school anyway? The... Administration at, uh, I think, her institution is even more clueless than that here at ECU, uh, which is doing its best. They gambled on going to a block system and getting in seven weeks of classes, and they lost badly. But they acknowledged uh, that they they lost that gamble, and they're they're doing their best to try to uh, recover. I'd, just to recap, here's higher education and the pandemic this year. At one end, you've got school like Harvard. I went to Harvard. Uh, I haven't mentioned that in a long time. Uh, At one end, you've got Harvard saying, we can't protect our students. Let's go all online. Then you've got the next tier of schools like East Carolina, UNC Chapel Hill, NC State, all saying, oh, we can do it. We can protect the students. And after two weeks of trying, they go, no, we can't. They're all getting sick. Uh, Then the third level, you've got my alma mater, University of Michigan, saying, we can protect the students, then observing the other schools for three weeks, trying and failing, and starting anyway, which Michigan did earlier this week. My uh, niece is a student there, and somehow uh, the the message hasn't gotten through. So Michigan thinks they're going to succeed where everyone else has failed. We'll see. And then at the bottom end of the scale, you've got schools like Alabama and Auburn, where not only are the students getting sick, but the administration is trying to hide it, telling the faculty, don't tell students that other students are sick. Don't tell people why they're not showing up for classes. Uh, Don't reveal the actual illness numbers. Uh, Because, of course, parents won't notice when their kids get COVID-19, you know, as long as it's not made public somehow. It's just crazy. Well, here at ECU, one thing I said last week that I want to repeat is a request for your help. And I ask about donations in a lighthearted way, and a few people send me a few dollars, and I use it to buy a book now and then. I bought some for online teaching this year, or I buy another bottle of Knob Creek bourbon, not a sponsor of the show. That's a free a uh, free product placement there. But this month, 
if you donate to the show, I will use it for a scholarship in the name of my late and much lamented colleague, Wade Dudley. Professor Dudley taught at ECU for many years as a fixed-term instructor. Uh, he was the advisor to Phi Alpha Theta, the history uh, honors and pre-professional organization. Really a, a, a great person and retired at the end of last year and then uh, uh, tragically uh, died this summer. Uh, it's it's just we're still stunned at, at the sudden loss of this this person we all liked so much and, and who had his whole retirement ahead. So if you can kick in twenty dollars, if you can go to www.impedimentsofwar.org, the website for this program, and find the button that says donate here, the PayPal button. Click on it. You don't have to have a PayPal account yourself. You can do it. They'll PayPal can magically extract money from you. Uh, if you do that, that money this month will go toward a scholarship for ECU students uh, in honor of Professor Dudley, uh, who, who richly deserves that recognition. And it's not a huge amount of money uh, in, in the scale of things. If you listen to all 500 episodes of the show, it's, it's just pennies apiece. Uh, even if you don't, think of it this way. There, in a normal month, we get 60,000 hits on, on the show. That's not 60,000 different listeners. That may be 59,000 Russian bots and then 1,000 loyal listeners. I don't know. But during the pandemic, one month this past summer, the number tripled. We had 180,000 uh, individual clicks on Civil War talk radio. If 1% of those were real people, and each of you real people actually put in $20 for the Wade Dudley Scholarship Fund, we'd really have something that would really benefit real students. Uh, so uh, please consider doing that. Anything you donate this month to uh, the show will go. I will turn it over to the Wade Dudley Scholarship Fund and uh, hope we can do that. While you're at impedimentsofwar.org, uh, where Mark Gaffney keeps us up to date. You can see who's going to be on the show next week and the week after and so on. Uh, to save you the time, I'll tell you right now, next week, Sharon S. McDonald is the co-author of Carrying the Colors, The Life and Legacy of Medal of Honor recipient Andrew Jackson Smith. Uh, it's a story I don't know yet. I'm looking forward to learning it, sharing it with you. On the 16th, Niels Eichhorn, uh, who does a lot of work with the uh, HNET uh, Civ War, uh, uh, what do they call that, a uh, listserv. Uh, he has a book called Liberty and Slavery, European Separatists, Southern Secession, and the American Civil War. A little bit different from tonight's topic. On the 23rd, Mark Dunkelman comes back to the show to talk about uh, Amos Humiston, the soldier killed at Gettysburg, among many. No show, no live show on September 30th as its final exams for the shortened semester, uh, block one of the shortened semester. And just uh, we'll go into October, the first show in October, October 7th. Gary Gallagher has a new book. That's all I need to say. Uh, you've read his stuff. Anytime he talks, it's interesting. And he is one of my favorite guests to have on the show because I only need to prepare one, maybe two questions, and he will take it from there. Uh, you'll, I'll enjoy it, and I know you'll enjoy hearing uh, Professor Gallagher back on the show 
on October 7th. His new book is called The Enduring Civil War, Reflections on the Great American Crisis. So that's what's coming up. Uh, Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours is not touring, of course, because of the pandemic. But if you go to their website, you can actually get a look at me. Click on the History Happy Hour shows, and you can see me chatting with two of their other historians about Abraham Lincoln and his role as Commander-in-Chief. We recorded it last Sunday, and uh, you can see what I look like. If you're the least bit curious, no reason you should be. Well, last week we had a book on the show. We talked about talked with Ted Widmer about, uh, it was called Lincoln on the Verge, about Lincoln's trip to Washington in 1861. When I select the books for the show, I don't consciously choose them by topic, uh, and I don't read them in advance of, of, of picking them. I obviously couldn't do that. I read them before the show starts, and I've read tonight's book, but uh, I read the 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 topic the show topics come about organically uh, people suggest them or i find them and and i did not intend that we would have two consecutive books that both deal so closely with civil war era topics that resonate today uh last week's book certainly did uh and and tonight's does as well and and we'll ask about that among many other things uh, talking with our guest, who is Professor William L. Barney from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's been on the show before. It was, it's hard to believe this, 2008, uh, 12 years ago, when we talked about his, uh, his book, The Making of a Confederate, uh, William Lenore's Civil War. Bill, it is good to have you back on the show. Are you there? Well, thank you very much, Jerry. It's always, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Well, welcome back. It, uh, the first question I have to ask, uh, because my family insists on it, is to ask if you remember uh, my daughter Maria showing up in your Civil War class sometime in the last three or four years. Uh, she took your uh, seminar uh, and wrote a paper on music in the Civil War. Ah, remember and, the paper, yes. Uh, there we go. And she did that without consulting me at all. I, I didn't see it till it was handed in, and, and she earned whatever she earned. Um, but she she ended up double majoring in history and journalism. And uh, well, glad to hear uh, it. And, and she's yeah, got a always a fun, decent job. It's always a fun course. It's based upon the students going through primary documents and mm-hmm. coming up with some thesis relative to um, Civil Wars, a lived experience for whomever or whatever group they want to look at. So music was a very interesting, unusual topic that, as I recall, she did a very good job with. Well, she she enjoyed it and and, uh, enjoyed the course, and I'm delighted to say this, that she is fully employed. She graduated two years ago and is up in Chicago and has a full-time job and uses her writing skills daily, so... uh, is she uh, in those, journalism or uh, no? She's in public relations. She's working for uh, she she does social media marketing consulting. Yeah, essentially. Okay. Uh, well, uh, skills which, of writing and knowing how to put together an argument and pursue a theme uh, are incredibly valuable. It, it not is discipline specific or career uh, specific. No, but it, exactly the things we hopefully teach our students uh, in history uh, classes yeah. come back. Uh, to be used in all kinds of ways, and, and hopefully yep. that's the case here. Underline, hopefully. So, yes. 
So, um, and how are you managing uh, teaching-wise this semester? Well, my children, I call them children, they're both <laughs> in their late 40s, uh, convinced me back in late July it was utterly foolish to uh, have in-class uh, classes, so I converted everything to remote, came up with a actually rather rigorous um, uh, schedule for the students, a lot of writing, mostly uh, shorter papers, and it's all online, and thanks to uh, word tracking devices, I'm able to return them with the red marks automatically there are my comments, but uh, they've been uh, real, real troopers so far, and uh, enrollment's held up fairly well, and they're getting the full gamut of material without the uh, advantage or disadvantage of listening to me. <laughs> but a lot of uh, a lot of videos, a lot of short papers, and a lot of what I hope is good, solid historical analysis. Well, that that's good. We're all finding our way in this new world of teaching yeah. online. It, it's yeah, it's this is absolutely the. Well, apart from the trial run back in April, where right. most of the uh, semester was already done, but this was uh, designed from scratch to be a remote course, and uh, for the most part, uh, I think it's working well. Well, that, that's that's good to hear, and it's because they're certainly going to be that way for a little while. So, but I certainly miss not being on campus. I miss not being with students. It's such an integral part of teaching. Uh, but uh, it is what it is, so you try to make the best of it. Yeah, that, 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 you're absolutely right about that. It is the, the, the thing that keeps many of us going, the feedback, the interaction yeah. with the students in the classroom, exactly. the discussion that goes off on a tangent, and the light comes on, and, and suddenly uh, I see how 1860 relates to what we're talking about. That's right. Uh, you can follow their expressions during a lecture. You, Clue mm-hmm. into what's registering and what isn't, and you draw them out. They often come up with incredibly interesting questions you never would have thought of. So that is uh, that is certainly the big void. It, it is, and and we'll do our best with that. Um, the, the, I I would love to chat to just talk shop the rest of the hour, but we should talk about uh, your book. Instead of jumping oh. into the question and cutting away, let's take a short break right now and then okay. start fresh. Uh, in the second uh, section, we are talking tonight with Professor William Barney. He's the author of Rebels in the Making, The Secession Crisis, and the Birth of the Confederacy. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. 
Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access all the time streaming live the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com you are listening to civil war talk radio if you have a question or comment about our program please send an email to prokopovich g at ecu dot edu that's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Bill Barney, author of Rebels in the Making, The Secession Crisis, and The Birth of the Confederacy. So, Bill... You must have started writing this book, given the, the volume of research behind it, uh, some years ago. And yet, as it comes out, it comes out in an election year when people are, are, are questioning the, the very continuation of the republic, much as happens in the year you're writing about. Did you have any uh, idea? Yeah, it turns out that's what happened. <laughs> How did – is it just coincidence? Did you sense something uh, yeah. in – Yeah, I think uh, for the most part coincidence. Uh, the only element of timing on the part of the publisher was to wait until the worst of the initial COVID shock had worn off. Uh, initially, the book was scheduled for release back in April, and they put it off to August. And uh, when I did a couple of blog pieces, he said, well, as it turns out, timing could have been better. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So you're writing about a society, uh, a Southern society, in the immediate years before the Civil War, which looks on its surface like things are, are going great, but you suggest that, in fact, there's a lot of uh, dissatisfaction and uh, dissension and, and uh, really a, a crisis atmosphere by 1860. What was under uh, the surface? Yeah, certainly tensions were building up within the South, particularly the Lower South. So what, what, what are the tensions over? What are, what are the issues that are dividing Southerners? Well, um, as the economy matured, and that was the key, as the economy matured, 
opportunities for uh, non-slaveholders or those trying to break in or even small slaveholding farmers were starting to shrink. Uh, it was getting increasingly difficult to find good land. There was plenty of land, but good land for commercial farming at uh, affordable prices. Uh, slave prices uh, doubled during the decade. Uh, the decade witnessed the sharpest increase in uh, non-slaveholding white families of any antebellum decade, dipped down to uh, 25% from 30%. And uh, those stigmatized, sometimes unfairly, uh, but the generic phrase, poor whites, if we um, detach from it any uh, cultural connotations, but use it to refer to uh, white families, white males, who own neither land nor slaves, their numbers just grew and grew to um, roughly one in three southern white families. Uh, it varied a bit, 20 40%, but the average was around one-third. And on top of all of this, the uh, increasingly sacred color line was increasingly becoming blurred. Census revealed a dramatic increase in those identified by census takers as racially mixed, and the slave population itself was uh, increasingly mixed, making it very, very difficult if you wanted to pick up a couple servants, purchase a couple to find any that weren't the offspring of the owner from whom the purchase was being made or a close relative. So, again, all of this challenge, prevailing assumptions, opportunity, uh, the sanctity and privileges associated with the color line, and uh, non-slaveholding uh, whites were starting to get restless. Uh, so I, what we might call proto-populist movements were starting to emerge. They hadn't matured, but uh, planners were aware of them. And uh, these folks, uh, in many states, led the secessionist charge. But tensions were building up. And this is just within the South, to say nothing of the external fears occasioned by the seemingly relentless growth of the, the anti-slavery Republican Party. I, I was really interested to learn how the number of landless and non-slaveholding white families was increasing. Uh, but even those who own slaves, you point out, are, are going uh, further into debt. Yeah. If I, if I have it right, you suggest that when things, when you have a bad year and, you know, any farmer has a bad year uh, at some point, the slaveholders would have to borrow to cover that. But if they have a good year, then they would see the opportunity to leverage the economic success by getting more land and more slaves, so they would borrow to buy them. Exactly. So if you have a bad year, you borrow, but if you have a good year, you borrow. And the uh, result yes. is endless debt. Endless debt. And as long as um, particularly the price of slaves kept going up and the cotton market did not collapse, they could keep rolling it over. It was almost like a mm -hmm. Ponzi scheme. Uh, but all that froze 
particularly when Lincoln was elected. There was going to be some sort of reckoning. The speculative bubble had reached a point where sooner or later it was going to break. But it broke when it did because credit markets froze up, uh, given the fears of the political consequences with uh, Lincoln's election. So the southern economy during what... During the period during which uh, secessionists were active and eventually succeeded, uh, basically was depressed. It's one of the reasons why there were so many mobs, so many rallies. These were individuals that didn't have much else to do. They didn't have jobs. (laughs) And everyone was trying to collect debts from those who owed the money. And you have this vast network of uh, debts so that economy was based upon credit and particularly IOUs, mm-hmm. and uh, everything just froze up. So that happens, as you point out, with the election of Lincoln. Your description of the run-up to that election, the, the months before, again, resonates because we're, as you and I are talking now, recording this in September 2020, we're in the same period before a national election, and you suggests there were all kinds of uh, paranoid fears running through the South, yeah. fears of, of uh, well, what were they afraid of most? Well, uh, here I think there is a distinct parallel with American society in the post-industrial, or certainly the last 10, 15 years, uh, just a, a gnawing feeling of insecurity. And it was almost a perfect storm for the secessionists, who were a distinct minority until Lincoln's election. Uh, It was the worst crop year in the South that anyone could remember. And Mm -hmm. corn suffers more in a drought than cotton. Uh, The corn crop in major areas of the lower South was wiped out. That was was the sustenance for uh, non-planting families. They were desperate. And uh, one wild-eyed, paranoid fear of a slave uprising inspired not by the slaves themselves, but by all these shadowy abolitionist emissaries that that somehow had penetrated Southern white society, gained the trust of local whites, and um, they 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 were fearful. They were insecure, their futures looked bleak, and um, uh, the secessionists realized this and offered them what came across as a panacea for all of their problems. (laughs) We'll control our own affairs, we'll keep the abolitionists out, we won't have to worry about that, we'll rely upon our own resources so we can get our economy back up and going, and of course, it was all a pipe dream. And, and those who, who buy into this pipe dream, you point out, are often those on on the way up or imagine they should be on the way up in the economy, but maybe aren't. Uh, the, yeah. the movers and shakers of, of the secessionist movement are not, uh, in, in your account, they're, they're not the people at the pinnacle, the, the biggest slaveholders, no. the the, the Whigs, they're, they're not interested in this at first. Uh, no, they have too much to lose. Uh, they're likely to have uh, much closer attachments to Northerners. 
uh, often through marriage, often through birth, often through their diversified portfolios. They invested their uh, money very, very wisely, northern investments, international investments, whereas uh, those who push for secession, uh, predominantly young lawyers and young slaveholders on the way up, and they saw the Republican Party, particularly in the crisis of the closing of opportunities in the late 50s, as an impediment both to their economic future and to their very sense of self, the constant degradation of being described as sinners and so on. So one of the mistakes I think uh, we traditionally make when we look at secession is to view slaveholders as a monolithic class. They weren't. And uh, the oldest, the wealthiest, Mississippi Delta planters, for example, they were the equivalent of today's 1%, uh, were by no means um, in the forefront of secession or even, des- or even desirous of it happening. Uh, they did eventually go along when they basically saw no choice, but uh, they were not the ones who were pushing and then there's a very small core group of what we might call ideologues. These are just committed secessionists. They long had been committed secessionists. Uh, Robert Rett's probably the best example. Now, did, I want to go back for a second. You mentioned the uh, the discomfort that these secessionists had with the attacks, not just on their economic uh, standing, but on their, their, you said, their sense of self, the idea of being criticized yeah. is... As sinners, yeah. you, you have a chapter about the the crisis of, of conscience in which you I, I come away with the impression that for many slaveholders, the experience was one of growing up uh, as children, having a sort of child's natural innocence of saying, "Why is this person being you know lashed when they didn't do anything yeah. wrong except to be black?" Uh, and learning to grow out of that, learning to to be taught the ways of the world and to overcome yeah. a sort of natural justice and become a white supremacist and a, a slaveholder. So you found yeah, evidence of that in their in their writing, in their yeah thinking. Can you talk about yeah. that phenomenon? Well, they uh, often mentioned it in their uh, in their letters. Uh, there are numerous examples: uh, ministers, sons of. Uh, planners, um, most of them did not go the route of the Grimke sisters, Angelina and Sarah. But the basic theme I was trying to uh, stress in that uh, chapter, uh, which I think plays into how they reacted to Lincoln's elections as the book goes on, uh, I wasn't arguing so much that they felt guilty over slavery. Some of them did, but uh, evidence for it is, is sparse. But I think considerably more of them than we've been willing to admit for a whole number of reasons were uneasy with the institution. They were um, uh, not morally comfortable with it. But, again, to uh, place it in the context of the times, barring leaving the South being stigmatized by your family, um, there was little they could do 
if they fully owned their slaves, they could uh, emancipate them and send them north. That was the only way they could emancipate them. Uh, no, uh, it was virtually impossible to manumit slaves individually prior, uh, by the 1850s. So in that sense, they were really trapped. And given northern racism and given the generally accepted um, view of southern free blacks as impoverished and degraded, which is, of course, exaggerated, but that was the view, they were often able to convince themselves, well, better that I look after them than I unleash them in a uh, heartless world that will quickly uh, grind them to dust and uh, treat them as trash. So, in short, it's, to use the cliché, it was more complicated than you might think. It wasn't, <laughs> I'm for slavery or I'm against slavery. There was this vast gray area, and a lot of Southerners wrestled, uh, Southern whites wrestled with what to do. I, I, and they never admitted that they were responsible for slavery. I mean, no. they always, always, no. The North uh, foisted it upon us. Yeah, the, the the victimization expressed by uh, many yeah. of these people who become who become secessionists is quite striking. Uh, you make a point. Uh, and again, there chapter. are contemporary oh, parallels. Very <laughs> this much is our so. America that's being taken away from us. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, at one point you you talk about how uh, it's not it was not uncommon for uh, younger. Uh, uh, white farmers with maybe a small number of slaves to be more rigorous in enforcing the slave code to resent, uh, uh, to, to want to protect the color line more vigorously because their identity depended on it more than their rich uh, planter neighbors who might, uh, yeah. might, might, might not be quite as invested in it because and, they've got uh, theirs. Most, most planters, particularly the more slaves that they had, tended to be uh, cushioned from many of the day-to-day -day realities of slavery, certainly in the field, because they had uh, overseers and managers. Uh, and on a large plantation, it was probably the planter's wife or daughters who had the most intimate, direct, daily contact with slaves. And as... Uh, Theophila Glemp and others have shown, uh, there's no doubt that they would quickly resort to uh, violence, given their frustrations and so on. So, uh, smaller slaveholders, I mean, again, I think to romanticize them as working in the fields with the slaves, and et cetera, et cetera, no. <laughs> Not the case. Not We're going to take another short break and come back, talk more with our guest tonight, William L. Barney, author of Rebels in the Making, The Secession Crisis and the Birth of the Confederacy. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. 
host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with William L. Barney, author of Rebels in the Making, The Secession Crisis and the Birth of the Confederacy. Uh, Bill, you describe in... Uh, chapter by chapter how each of these soon-to-be Confederate states goes about seceding, starting, of course, with South Carolina, where immediately after Lincoln's election, a local federal judge and district attorney resign, and this starts things in motion. Uh, What I want to ask you about is the action of the state legislature there. They are are about to meet and, and vote to have a vote on secession, if they do it right away, it'll pass for sure while while the the iron is hot. If they put it off for a month or two, who mm-hmm. knows what will happen. In, in his own work on disunion, uh, William Freeling stresses the element of contingency, that if there hadn't been a celebratory dinner for the Charleston and Savannah Railroad in Charleston that night with some Georgians there who spoke in favor of secession – the legislature might not have acted, he argues. Do mm-hmm. you share that view? Um, basically, no. Uh, and, uh, of course, I have tremendous respect for Bill's work and uh, a wonderful writer. But uh, I will say the same thing about uh, continuing to say with uh, McPherson's Battleground of the Union. Um on one hand, of course, um, who can predict 
what is going to happen almost minute, minute to minute. So, so there's always the element of chance, serendipity. It's always there. Uh, but I would argue that uh, regardless of how an individual battle in the Civil War turned out, as long as the uh, pro-war majority held in, in the North, it didn't make much difference, if any. In this case, uh, had the fortuitous uh, arrival of the uh, Savannah delegates and getting drunk and getting up and saying, we're, we're with you, which of course meant absolutely nothing, uh, and then was jumped upon by uh, the Red crowd, uh, had that not occurred, something else would have. Uh, the uh, secessionist uh, minority had gone too far to back down, and I simply think they would have come up with some other mechanism. And who knows how long that South Carolina uh, pro somewhat delay, delay until January rather than December, majority would have uh, would have held out. But um, I I, th- I think the pressure brought upon them would have seen them quickly cave in the same way that uh, James Hammond. Uh, few North Carolina politicians at Hammond's reputation or national influence that Hammond did. Hammond tried to, well, let's just not not rush into this routine and uh, got So, again, there's no way of knowing, but I'm inclined to think that uh, some other pretext to move quickly would have been manufactured. So they do end up moving quickly, and they they act alone, uh, but not yep. too long after that, uh, Mississippi and Florida follow them. In a series of chapters, you talk about each of the, the Deep South states seceding. Was there any one of those states where some contingency, such as we're talking about here, could realistically have happened that could have reversed Secession, or or was it a foregone conclusion in all of them? No, it wasn't a foregone conclusion. Um, What put the secessionist over the top was the uh, basic collapse of the credit and compromise. Had that passed with a slavery extension feature to the Pacific, um, very good chance that that would have. Mm, prevented the secession of the additional six cotton states, or at least most of them. It certainly would have done the trick in Georgia, and it probably would have worked in Alabama as well. But if Georgia didn't go out, the whole thing was a fiasco. They absolutely had to have Georgia geographically and in terms of its size, et cetera, et cetera. So the failure of the uh, so-called credit and compromise, as well as the out-of-left-field event of um, Anderson moving out to uh, Sumter, which was taken as the pretext for the Democratic pro-secession governors in the Lower South to seize federal forts and possessions in their states, they were the two events that clinched secession in the Lower South. Not in the Upper South, to be sure, but in the Lower South, it did. So um, I guess you could call it a contingency. Um, uh, certainly, some, uh, Anderson's move was not anticipated 
the failure of compromise efforts probably did not come as that great a surprise. It, it's well, this book does show how in each of these states there certainly were different levels of strength of of. Uh, what, you, what you describe as conservative uh, opinion that opposed immediate secession. Yeah. Did not, these are still pro-slavery uh, people for the most part. Still pro-slavery and theoretically still pro-secession, but upon terms that the original secessionists thought were just creating a Trojan horde. So if you mentioned the Upper South. Let's flip the question around. Virginia, Tennessee, North Carolina... Uh, in Arkansas, don't immediately secede. In, in some of the states, they hold conventions which vote, in which the unionists win, and the, mm-hmm. the states vote against secession. Was there a reason, was there something that might have flipped one of those states in the other direction? Uh, to secession or staying in yes. the union? Yeah, well, in, the, in their initial vote, uh, to, to secede along with the initial seven, is well, there, the um, the pro-union, although with conditions attached, the mm-hmm. the pro-union position was so strong. I mean, they were clear majorities. Uh, case of North Carolina, close to two to one. Mm-hmm. Virginia, unionists got sixty percent plus. Arkansas was only the Delta and the River Valleys that supported secession. Um, they were pretty solidly pro, let's call it, conditional union. Uh, the two conditions being, we will get a deal, and secondly, no force will be used. And uh, the fascinating question, and obviously I had to wrap the book up somewhere, and uh, I still think it could uh, serve as the basis for a fascinating book, is what would have happened... Well, there's always the question, what would have happened had Davis not taken the bait and fired upon Sumter? Uh, But the other one is, if Lincoln had not issued the call for troops, Mm -hmm. would Virginia, which is the key state, have nonetheless still, within a month, drifted into the Confederate lap? We don't know. And here I might cite a fascinating example no one, absolutely no one, became more of a committed, unregenerate Confederate than Jubal Early. Right. And uh, Early defies all the stereotypes, well, many of which I used, I guess, uh, <laughs> but many of the uh, impressions we have of a gung-ho secessionist. He was a unionist. He bitterly denounced the Confederacy. When the news of the firing on Fort Sumter and the surrender of the fort reached the Virginia Convention, Early, amongst others, got up and said, that doesn't change a thing. Mm. Uh, Davis and the Confederates are just itching for a fight. No, I want nothing to do with them. But, of course, two days later, Lincoln's call for troops Early commits to secession, and he never looked back. It's almost as if the sense of betrayal was so great that it generated this repressed rage that he took to his grave. <laughs> so Interesting. that is really a fascinating question. Uh, it, 
the no, counter-argument really is. is Lincoln had to do something decisive because the Republican Party was untested. It had contesting blocks, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, a really close, nuanced analysis, uh, not quite counterfactual, but uh, asking the question, just how long would the pro-union majority in these four states have held? Could it have extended on into um, late May? The so-called middle states were supposed to meet in Frankfurt. What if nothing came of that? Uh, would anything ever get them off the fence? <laughs> Fascinating question. But, of course, it really it's all, it's all uh, meaningless uh, or became meaningless once Lincoln issued the call for troops. And even then, yes. they didn't do it immediately, with the exception of Virginia. No, it, it would. It, it, the The call for troops does, of course, change everything. As you point out, the border states uh, don't even hold. They don't even think about seceding early on, uh, not because they're they're weak in pro slavery, but just the opposite reason. They're fully yeah. aware that they depend on the federal government to enforce slavery. If they if they go yeah. out of the uh, Union, the Ohio River becomes the Canadian border as far as slaves are concerned. Yeah. And, uh, and so. um, again, you have this fascinating problem of explaining why the secessionists were convinced uh, slavery was soon doomed within the Union. And in the border states, four of them, they clung to the Union as the guardian of slavery right through the war. Yeah. yeah right right through the war. <laughs> So the uh, you you wrap up by talking about the formation of the Confederacy, and we lack time to go into detail. But uh, it would I found it interesting. You point out the Confederate Constitution uh, doesn't say anything uh, new about states' rights. Doesn't reopen no. the African slave trade. Uh, it doesn't. It, it's as if to say th those are all just political issues to keep the fire going. Now that we've got our own country, you don't need to worry about them. That's right. And let's, and let's get down to the issue everyone knows is the issue, slavery. And slavery yes. can never be touched in the Confederacy, which is one of the hallmarks of the Constitution. So they, they set that up. Let me, we, we have just a couple of minutes left. Um, I want to ask the question I asked last week's author. His book on Lincoln's train journey to Washington, uh, even though it portrayed a time when the country is literally going to pieces, I thought, and he thought, was ultimately a hopeful book. It, it shows Lincoln restoring faith in the power of government to a large number of Americans. Um, this, Your book also shows a group of people tearing the country apart for their own individual purposes. I have to say, I don't come away with a message of hope from this book. And again, you didn't write it with today's circumstances in mind, obviously, you started it long, you know, years ago. Um, is there a message of hope to be found here? Or is this, as you conclude, the Civil War was just a down payment on the atonement of the sin of slavery, and maybe we still have to pay more? I would uh, stress uh, the latter take. Um, Lincoln's greatness uh, at this stage of the ongoing crisis, was refusing to give in, unquote, the Negro question. He would not 
surrender uh, the core principles he felt were involved in the Negro question. That went back to the core principles expressed in the Declaration of Independence. Had he been willing to do so, uh, secession would have been aborted. Um, he would have given them what they wanted in terms of the extension of slavery. Um, and uh, I think the worst of the crisis would have been over. And if South Carolina chose to go alone, um, most of the other states, including those in the South, would say, good luck. You <laughs> created the mess. You deal with it. Uh, but well, so I, I think that was the hope. Well, the hope of those Northerners and probably a majority who felt that slavery was enough of a moral issue combined with ongoing disgust with what they saw as the aggressive, my way, no way attitude of slaveholders, uh, I think Lincoln did give them hope. And it made well, poor Buchanan look even worse than he probably was, because, of course, it, the contrast is an obvious one. <laughs> It, it is that. Unfortunately, Bill, we are out of time. It always happens sooner than seems possible. But we have to wrap up with reminding the listeners that we've been talking about the book Rebels in the Making, The Secession Crisis and the Birth of the Confederacy. Uh, if you want to learn uh, how much more complex and really fascinating this process was, uh, it's the book you'll want to read. Bill, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. You're very, very welcome, and uh, thank you for having me, Jeremy. Enjoyed it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.